Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Aspect Radio. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan. Today we caulk the wagon and ford the river on the Oregon Trail in Meek's Cutoff, jump on one side of the fence on Bellflower, and whine about movie spoiler oversaturation. But first, it's time for the intro of the review of the rise of the planet of the apes. We're talking about huge potential for millions of people. Our therapy enables the brain to repair itself. We call it the cure. I want you to start testing on chimps ASAP. We test one subject. I want to make sure it's stable. I designed the 112 for repair, but Caesar's gone way beyond that. You mean increased intelligence? Skills that far exceed that of a human counterpart. This is wrong, Will. It works. And what about Caesar? Where does he fit in? That chip's company property. He hasn't spent any time with other chips. They're not people, you know. Are you trying to control things that are not meant to be controlled? Corey. In 1968, someone at 20th Century Fox created a monster, and I don't necessarily mean the ones you find in the original Planet of the Apes, which starred the ever-manly Charlton Heston. With that film, we got some solid B-movie sci-fi schlock that would have lived on despite what followed, and today it shouldn't surprise us when an instant film franchise launches a bevy of sequels, prequels, and remakes to follow your initial smash hit. But whether or not we needed Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, two television series, and then that Tim Burton remake in 2001, it doesn't matter. We have to live with it. So when I first heard about this year's Rise of the Planet of the Apes, I was about as indifferent as America when it heard the news Brett Ratner is producing the next Oscars broadcast. In our new age of rebooting any remotely successful franchise of the past, you could say that we were warned about this. And when the trailers rolled around, I basically decided that I might let this one come and go. But then some reviews started rolling in. And while I rarely let critics influence my decisions to see anything in the theater anymore, I must say the positive reviews that I saw for this really piqued my interest. In it, James Franco stars as a genetic engineer who develops a medicine meant to cure Alzheimer's disease that he tests on chimpanzees. And once his pet chimp, Caesar, begins to show signs that the serum works at a rapid speed, developing the animal's brain faster than a human's, the chimp begins to think and act on his own behalf, perhaps shifting a balance of power. So, Corey, after sitting through all that plot, and once director Rupert Wyatt's version of this story gets going, I must ask you, did you go ape for this? (laughs) Or did it all feel like a room full of monkeys at typewriters put it all together? You know, I was with you when I first heard about this project and when the first trailers started rolling in, uh, as I said on the show last week, I wasn't very interested in this movie, but then you were pretty down on it. I was, I was pretty down on it. I was, I, you know, whether or not it's, it's just a, a tired concept or just the studio behind it, 20th century Fox who are not well regarded for treating genre properties with respect. I just wasn't feeling it. And then all of a sudden last week around the, beginning of last week you started getting reviews that were like whoa hold on 
you guys really need to give this movie another thought, some more consideration, because it turns out it's actually pretty good. So that sort of piqued my interest, and um, I was I was very pleased to discover when when I saw it last night. I think it's really good too. I think it's a really really fun popcorn summer blockbuster that treats its subject intelligently and it does so with a style and with just these tremendous special effects from Weta, uh, the the folks who were behind the special effects for Lord of the Rings and Avatar. Special effects that I would actually argue are the equal of those on display in Avatar in a lot of ways. Well, I'm going to bring you my highest level of critical thinking here and use the fanciest word I can think of to describe this experience, okay? Okay. Badass. Yeah. This movie's badass. It really is. And I haven't really had a chance to say that about anything this summer yet. I think that this is probably the most fun that I've had at a movie theater in 2011 so far, with the exception of maybe a comedy or two, or uh, what I would consider the best movie of the year, maybe Midnight in Paris. But really, this is probably towards the top of my list of best of 2011 so far. You get what you pay for, certainly. This is a movie about apes who sort of turn on humans, and yet it does harken back to the original schlocky series that people sort of love, I guess. This is a ton of fun. I was on the edge of my seat, really, literally, during most of this movie. It has suspense. It has good action. It has pretty good writing. It has pretty good plot development, and more importantly, character development. And specifically, it develops the character of Caesar here this ape who we care way more about more than any other human. And once we do sort of sift through all of that ridiculous plot in James Franco, we have to buy James Franco as a genetic engineer in this. And he's saying... A heavy-lidded genetic engineer. Saying stupid things. I mean, hearing James Franco saying things like, we have five years of conclusive evidence, you know, or conclusive data. I mean, just hearing him say scientific things and deliver these lines without much effort, it's just, it's kind of funny, but it doesn't really matter. It gets the job done. Yeah. And really, the story here is Caesar as played, as far as I know, by Andy Serkis. That's this right. is a yeah. CGI character. I mean, Andy Serkis has been renowned to this date for creating living, breathing performances under CGI uh, makeup, if you will, with Gollum in the Lord of the Rings movies and then King Kong and Peter Jackson's King Kong remake. Those were very expressive performances, even though they were basically digital effects mapped over a human performance. And here I think he... I don't know that he creates a more indelible character than Gollum, but but this work probably equals that. And only by body language, mm-hmm. only by the expressions on his face. Gollum could talk. Yeah, Gollum could talk. He had that luxury. Absolutely he did. And, I mean, if, if you don't buy Caesar and if they don't get the effects right and Andy Serkis doesn't get these movements right, the movie fails. But it got to a point very quickly into the movie where you forget that you're watching a special effect. Obviously, if you were to just stop and think, hey, wait a minute, mm-hmm. you know, this is obviously a special effect. It's not photo real because I think audiences at this point are accustomed to what is photo real and what isn't. Mm-hmm. But you're so caught up in the story that you stop thinking of it as a special effect and you start thinking, and it's the highest compliment you can pay a film that is so heavily reliant on special effects. You are caught up in the story, the special effects are serving the story, and it all works together instead of just being, you know, showy nonsense. He hasn't spent any time with other chimps. Oh, we're used to that. He'll be a little skittish at first, but we'll integrate him. You'll probably miss him more than he'll miss you. You'd be surprised how quickly they adapt. We provide a stimulating environment. He's going to thrive here. Caesar! It's going to be okay. 
Everything's gonna be okay. You're gonna stay here now. No. We're not going home right now. The experience, the longer you drag out the goodbyes, the harder it is. Well, there's a point in the film where Caesar has to be taken to an animal shelter after he behaves badly in his suburban neighborhood where he's living with James Franco and James Franco's father and Alzheimer's patient, John Lithgow. Right. And once he gets to that animal shelter, this turns into a prison movie. Turns into a prophet. Yeah, pretty much. Absolutely it does. He has to sort of earn his status, I guess, there. And he does it in these brilliant ways. But honestly, if this was two hours of Caesar in this animal shelter, in this prison, I would have been fine with it. Like an ape prison break movie. Yeah, it worked. It It was fun. And you've got these warden types played by Brian Cox, who is just slimy just by his mere presence. And then Tom Felton, most recently Draco Malfoy of the Harry Potter movies, laying it on a bit thick. Oh, very thick. And I was talking about this to my wife, Tess, as we left the theater. Tom Felton is just so mercilessly evil in this movie without any explanation whatsoever. We meet him. He's mean to the apes throughout the entire thing, and we get no reason for it. And like you said, it is laying on a bit thick, but it's effective, and it gives these apes enough motivation to do what they do. We get the build-up to this prison break, which is so interesting to me because we've had two movies in the past couple of years now that are not, by definition, prison films, but have the best prison break sequences that I can think of, and well, I'm talking one of about Toy Story three. This and Toy Story three. This, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's incredibly interesting that these movies that aren't prison movies are outdoing the prison movies. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And the prison break culminates in this extended action set piece where the apes get their revenge on a certain genetic laboratory, <laughs> and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah, once Caesar makes his move, once he makes the decision, once he reaches the point of no return here on his objective, I think the movie's as good as it gets. I yeah, think that yeah, it's, definitely. it's near great. And I worried about some of these action sequences and the way they were conceived, and uh, I had worries about how they would be executed because we see apes doing things that you wouldn't normally see because at one point most of them are exposed to the serum that James Franco's character has created, and it sort of rapidly enhances how they think and how they behave. And they start doing things that humans would do. And I guess that's the point here. We're right. sort of seeing this evolution that would one day lead to the planet of the apes. But what what I like so much about this is that it is presented entirely logically mm-hmm. and sequentially. People going into this movie may have a question like, oh, so there are like... 200 apes in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and they're going to grow into the planet of the apes against 6 billion people. That's addressed very, very particularly. Because mm-hmm. I heard that complaint like 20 times mm-hmm. coming to the movie. Like, why don't we just shoot them in the face? Want to see time. Yeah, and there are, there are other little Easter eggs in it, there too. Are little li- there are lions. Well, there are lions, and then there's, uh, you know, Caesar's playing with an object oh, right. um, during yep. one of the sequences that is really, it's, it's, a, it's a fun nod. But yeah, there are lines that don't work quite as well as the little Easter eggs do, especially Mostly one... because they're all delivered by Tom Felton. Exactly. And there's one big one delivered by Tom Felton, which, thank God, is overshadowed by what could be an incredibly cheesy moment, but has actually turned out to be a better moment compared to the one that came before it. Oh, man. I think this isn't the part in the film that had, like, the biggest audience reaction. Probably. In my theater. Yeah. I think, I I don't want to spoil it because it's such an awesome moment. Well, I'll say my theater fell silent. And I think that 
they sort of had the same experience as the characters on screen. Like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. exactly. No, my theater fell silent, and then everybody was just like, oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, but, was, it was great. Yeah, but for me, again, I mean, the highlight here, obviously, Circus's performance, but you really have to give it up to Rupert Wyatt. Who, right. I mean, I, I had wondered, who is this guy that is bringing this Planet of the Apes movie? I'd never heard of him. I know that he made this movie in 2008 called The Escapist, which I'm not very familiar it's with. It's kind of hard to find. It was one of those like Weinstein Company releases that got lost in the blockbuster thing. He's so, got game. Yeah, he, he really does. does. The compositions in this movie are great. The film looks great, even though, yeah, it's made up almost entirely of digitally enhanced shots because you're talking about all of these different apes mm-hmm. that are on the screen at the same time, and most of them are, again, enhanced by CG. But it looks fantastic. The pace here is really effective to me, especially in the last third of the movie right. during this extended action sequence that you're talking about. And really, I mean, I, I was with the apes. I, I just couldn't wait to see what they would do next and how they would achieve it. And they apply these guerrilla methods, I guess, <laughs> these attack methods against these humans that they're fighting. They just really know how to improvise with the best of them once they reach the Golden Gate Bridge. And when they see something, when they see an obstacle in their path, they adjust And the ways they do that are fascinating. Yeah, I totally agree. This was a lot of fun. A really nice late summer surprise uh, after kind of a lackluster summer. You know, I I mean, my favorite summer blockbusters all came in July and now here in August. So really, really nice breath of fresh air, particularly for something that I was not expecting a thing out of as of like Monday of this past week. Yeah, it was a quick turnaround for both of us, I think. And I'm very pleasantly surprised. But the film is now playing nationwide. And in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16. Well, for our next review, we're going to shift gears a little bit, both in genre and style, to talk about a movie we've mentioned a few times here on the show already. Kelly Reichert's frontier drama and low-key thriller, Meek's Cutoff. A story of increasing desperation, hopelessness, and distrust in the untamed lands along the Oregon Trail in the 1800s, a group of settlers including stars Michelle Williams, Will Patton, Paul Dano, and Shirley Henderson, are lost thanks to their blustery, perhaps overconfident guide, Stephen Meek, played by an unrecognizable Bruce Greenwood. As the toll of having no goal of sight sets in and their water supply dwindles, desperate measures are taken. A few unexpected turns... Fall of land downhill. We need water. That much I know. That's what you think that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're just finding our way. I don't blame him for not knowing. I blame him for saying he did. We made our decision. This is only a bad dream soon. It's going to be a story to tell. He knows where the water is. I've seen him strip the flesh clean off a man while he's still breathing. You people got no idea what you are dealing with here. We caught him signaling to someone. It means something. Open your eyes. God knows where he's taking us. Is he ignorant or is he just plain evil? Who knows what's over that here? Could be water. Could be an army of heathens. Now, I may sum this up to seem like any other Hollywood-type thriller, but Meek's cutoff is very deliberate. It's very slow-paced. 
as I've said on the show before, Ben, this is one of my favorite films of the year, and it offered me just as much tension as I would find from a standard Hollywood product, if not more so. Meek's cutoff closes around you like a noose before you really even realize what's happening. The tension's so thick. So you finally caught up with it this week. And while you don't have to immediately give away if it ranks with the best of the year for you so far, did you at least find that the film delivered on the tension and those all-important stakes? Well, first of all, is it going to bother you if Meek's Cutoff falls well behind Rise of the Planet of the Apes on my best of the year so far list? Well behind, maybe. (laughs) I mean, behind, like, slightly probably wouldn't bother me too much. Well, it's well behind. But, look, to answer your question, somewhat it does deliver on that promise. Yeah. And I think we're, we might butt heads a little bit on oh Meek's cutoff here. Yeah, and this should be a lot of fun. Yeah. I appreciate Kelly Reichardt as a filmmaker, and like you said, I appreciate what she's doing deliberately. It has a deliberate pace and a deliberate tone, and that's something that we look for in our auteurs these days, and we might not get enough of. And I think Kelly Reichardt is a unique individual voice that we should pay attention to. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I've, enjoyed all of her movies and i think meek's cutoff is something that is difficult for a lot of people to sit through and enjoy they were at least in my theater but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not a good film i think overall this is a pretty good movie but certainly it's not enough where i can say i was entertained and i can sit through something like there will be blood which is almost equally as deliberately paced right but it has enough moments in it and there are a few in meek's cutoff like you said, that are tension-filled, where we almost have a Mexican standoff at one point in this movie. And that's a really great moment. But there aren't enough of those moments. And I didn't really invest myself, and I don't think Reichardt invested enough into these characters to have me caring enough. And there weren't enough of these moments, I guess, to build on something that would leave, you know, that would have me leaving the theater saying, that's something that, you know, I will consider for the best of the year. And like you said, this isn't a decision that I should immediately make, especially about a Kelly Reichardt right, film, because right. this is going to sit with you for a while and you should probably see it again. But again, I can't say that I enjoyed this. Wow. I mean, I, I left the theater just knowing that what I had seen was just basically a masterwork. I mean, I was with this movie from start to finish just trapped in it, just like I, from its opening scene, which is, and I saw this movie like three months ago, so mm-hmm. forgive me if I'm a little hazy on the details, but the opening scene, you have these covered wagons going across a river, and it's very, very deliberate in its camera movement, and, and, and just the shot, it holds the shot of them getting across a river, which just appears to be, from the very beginning, this very Herculean task. You know, they've got to get across a river, and then little do you know that that will be the last water source that they they come across for a long time and the rest of the movie somewhat ironically deals with a lack of water yeah they're Um, up to their ears in water in that scene and it's a problem for them right and then later the opposite problem and it's that opposite problem that drives them throughout the throughout the movie and that tension of dwindling supplies of this blowhard Stephen meek leading them to god knows where uh, and just the constant tension of the men of the group off, segregated from everyone else, planning. What are they planning? Kelly Reichert doesn't let us know that. But you get most of the movie here through Michelle Williams' character. And I think there's a, re- there's a lot of really great character development there as she sort of comes into her own as a possible leader 
or as somebody who's not willing to accept, I guess, the submissive female role that Shirley Henderson's character and Zoe Kazan's characters have resigned themselves to. And I think, I mean, I think it just, it's just wonderful, particularly when, I guess, a mid-movie complication appears in the form of a Native American mm-hmm. uh, who Stephen Meek immediately distrusts, but there is some debate as to whether his presence might actually lend them to water or lead them to water and then to their eventual destination. And just that tension just permeated the whole thing for me and just made it totally engrossing. I wanted to buy everything you're talking about here about the distrust Mm -hmm. and uh, the fact that this is a survival film uh, when you boil it down. And I liked, you know, I I loved the element of introducing the Native American. It, It worked for me completely. But I think that this movie... And I won't get into spoilers here, and there's not much to spoil, honestly, but I think that this movie really ends up right where it started. And that might be, I guess, Rikard's objective here is that sometimes we go around in circles and we're left with this 50-50 open ending, I guess, that doesn't, it just doesn't really work for me, especially when you're asking your audience to join this group of Frontiers people and we we decide to go on this journey with them, and we're presented with the same obstacles, and we invest our time. I just don't really feel like the best thing to do is lead us on and just again honestly this remind this reminded me of a serious man mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, especially this thing that they introduced in that it's called the Schrodinger's cat yeah. idea. I think that sort of represented here in a lot of ways. But I just felt like, again, that this movie ends up right where it started, and it just doesn't really take us in a place where we deserve to go after we've invested that time. Well, plot-wise, yes, it is open-ended, but I think that the character arcs, the major character arcs in the movie, are concluded in in the closing shots of the movie for Michelle Williams, for Bruce Greenwood, even for, and I don't remember the actor's name, the particularly religious gentleman who um, is Shirley uh, Henderson's husband. Zoe Kazan, I think her arc is nicely ended. And that's a very, very subtle arc. Mm -hmm. Because she, I mean, she's portrayed as sort of this panicky, more urbane person. Paranoid. Yeah. And she gets increasingly paranoid. But I I feel like everybody, you know, there's a lot of really subtle character building throughout the movie. And everybody's arc is given justice by the end of the movie. And that's what I was, that's what I was satisfied with. I didn't really feel like I learned much from the characters at all. Frankly, except with the exception of Michelle Williams, obviously she's the character that does the most growing to me. And in the case of Meek, a lot happens to him, right? But we're never really let inside Meek's head. We never really see anything from Meek's perspective. I think just his act at the end is revealing enough. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that might be true. But what really bothered me too about it is Bruce Greenwood's performance. Well, frankly, I'm amazed. Miss Tethero saw this rescue and lived to tell the tale. I mean, you rarely see hide nor hair, but when we're hostile to heat, and just jumps you and cuts your throat. And they disappear in their own shadow. I mean, they can hide under the wolf skin so quiet. I mean, you step on them before you know it. And when one red skin hears, there's a dozen more. There's lurking nearby. And they're all on by now. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes they wait till they're fired on, but most often they don't. And they come on a woman. And they kill him. I mean, they never dream sparing a woman. You didn't like it? I didn't care for it. I loved it. No, because, uh, yeah, you're right. We had an unrecognizable Bruce Greenwood, and I can appreciate that for sure physically and the way he spoke. But I just, and you know, this is a real pet peeve of mine and maybe to a fault, but I just, the accent was just so horrible. And it might have been meant to be over the top because he was an over the top character. 
and that's fine. But, I mean, God, his opening lines when he's telling this story to this kid, I mean, immediately my eyes started rolling. But then you would have these very quiet, subtle moments where he would be sitting around with the men as they sort of plotted their journey and tried to figure out where they would go from there. And you would get Bruce Greenwood's real voice, his regular voice, mm-hmm. right? His very low voice that would have worked just fine. I mean, maybe that's the point. He's putting on a blustery He's putting on a performance, persona. right? Yeah. yeah, like you said, he's overconfident, and he is having to project this image for these people like he knows what he's doing, and he's a larger-than-life figure, and that fails him as the journey goes on. But no, I just thought that it was over the top, honestly. I mean, and that's okay. That's probably exactly what the director was looking for, but it just sort of annoyed me, I guess. Mm. It's just kind of a personal thing. Well, I I thought he was great. I thought Michelle Williams was great. This is probably one of my favorite female performances of the year so far from her. And and again, Kelly Reichert sort of eschews the big, I don't know, hero moments, the big traditional, like, underscored character moments It's very subtle work from virtually her entire stable of actors in this film, and I really do think they step up to the challenge. You have said on the show before that up until Meek's cutoff, you weren't exactly a Reichert fan. I had the same reaction to Wendy and Lucy that I think you're having to this. Mm -hmm. It was all right. Well, see, I had that initial reaction to Wendy and Lucy, too, and then I went back and watched it. I think it came on, like, IFC recently, Mm -hmm. and I watched it, and I found myself kind of enjoying it a little more picking up on more of the subtleties of the film and of Michelle Williams' performance. Maybe that'll happen with Meek's cutoff. Maybe. But again, look, I appreciate the larger themes that she's exploring, and I appreciate the way it's bookended by this image that we see, what what these people sort of walk upon and what is mentioned through a reading earlier in the film. Right. And that was effective, but I just think that the lack of development And these characters, from what I saw, I didn't see that as much. And I just didn't feel like I reached a point where I really cared what happened to these people, except for the Native American, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting character. Yeah, yeah, he's great. We're split on this, it seems. Clearly, you're going to be talking about this towards the end of the year. Yeah, I I mean, I think so. It's going to have to be roused by something pretty spectacular to move from near the top of my list. It's not at the top of my list, but man, I just... I can't wait to see it again. I mean, it's just one of those movies that's really stuck with me. And honestly, and this is a credit to Reichert as a technical filmmaker, I got a little worried when these guys were talking sort of in the distance of the shot. And you couldn't hear it. And you couldn't hear it, yeah. Yeah, you could could hear it in the foreground, and I I just got a little worried. But as the movie went on, you kind of figure out it's by design. You're you're hearing everything that Michelle Williams' character is hearing. And she's distanced, and you're you're feeling that distance. Yeah, and that's interesting. But again, I mean, I hope to go back and watch this and, I guess, appreciate the things that you appreciated here. But the first go-around just didn't really work for me. Right. Well, that's a shame. (laughs) The film is playing in limited release in the U.S. and in Montgomery at the Capri theater through Wednesday. Well, we'll take a quick break and choose sides over the polarizing new indie release Bellflower. Stick around. I know a thing or two about a thing or two. Aspect Radio. Welcome back to the deliberately paced Aspect Radio. (laughs) With Corey Craft, I'm Ben Flanagan, and joining us now to talk about what's in limited release is my brother Graham, all the way up in New York. Welcome back, Graham. Thank you. Good morning. Corey, how you doing? Hey, pretty good. Well, Graham, you've seen this movie, Bellflower, which I've only heard a little bit about, and I've seen the trailer, and it looks unusual but very interesting, and all I really know is that it's about a couple of guys who build flamethrowers while waiting for this global apocalypse. You can expound on that a little bit more, but I've also heard that the audiences where this is playing are really split right down the middle right now and either loving or hating this movie, so Graham, where do you stand? Um, 
you know how you this, you get a feeling after you see a movie like uh, for the first time, like Pulp Fiction, Boogie Nights, Fight Club, Swingers. You got the same feeling after I saw this movie. Uh, right now, this is the second best movie of the year behind Midnight in Paris. Totally original, unique movie that I think is a must see for anybody that has the opportunity to do it. And uh, <laughs> and uh, as Corey, as Corey is prone to do, it just to, to make a reference to the movie's plot. Corey, this would be worth driving to Texas for. <laughs> you know, this is a this is a debut feature from this guy Evan Glodell, and he's also the uh, the writer and he's the star of the movie. And he plays Woodrow, and like you said, he's they're two friends who who've moved from Wisconsin to L.A. for no apparent reason. Uh, they don't. It's never explained what their jobs are, if they have jobs, or you know, if they want to be in the movie business or what. But they just move to L.A. and they become obsessed with this this idea of preparing for the apocalypse, uh, and it's revealed that they're both Mad Max fans, and they reference the fact that they had a, a VHS taped copy of Mad Max that they used to watch over and over and over again as kids, and so they, they've, they're both mechanics, they build things, and they've, they've decided to build a flamethrower and also to kind of trick out a muscle car uh, in the same vein as that, the kind that you see in, in the Mad Max movies. So that they can be ready for the apocalypse. So, so they're they're doing this. This is kind of the, the background, but they're also trying to meet girls in L.A. and and hang out and have fun and go out. And they get in. They randomly in the early on in the movie uh, meet up with this group of girls. And uh, Woodrow is drawn to this girl Millie, who is uh, she's played by this girl named Jesse Wiseman, Millie. And so they they have this kind of meet cute and then it's kind of this romantic comedy for a little bit about them you know dating and getting to know each other then you flash forward a little bit they've been dating for a while and and, and uh woodrow has continued his obsession with building the flamethrower and the car and whatnot and then eventually woodrow catches millie cheating on him and then things descend into this just violent feverish downward spiral and you know then you have to also question is everything that we see on screen actually happening? I mean, this is, I'm serious. You know, I made those those comparisons earlier to Pulp Fiction, Boogie Nights, Fight Club, and Swingers. That's, that's how I felt. I mean, I feel like this guy, Evan Glodell, with this movie has put himself on the map, okay? I mean, this this is a serious work that everyone needs to pay attention to. You might be divided on it. I think you guys are both going to love it. I think there's really no question that it is a, it is a, a serious, serious effort from this guy. And, uh, you know, the people are divided. I'm, I'm saying that because, because uh, towards the end of the movie, like I said, things get violent. Things get intense, okay? But like I said, you got to stop and say, wait a minute, what am I, am I, is this, is this happening? It's not happening. There's more to it. And I'm not a big fan of violence, graphic violence. I don't, you know, <laughs> I kind of refuse to watch the hostile and soft films. This doesn't go there, okay? But, yes, it is violent. People get hurt, but it definitely serves the story and serves this world that this director has created that is just completely in every frame saturated with yellow and orange. I mean, and if you want to talk about the visuals of the movie, I mean, the the, the cinematographer, Joel Hodge, you know, we're going to have to watch out for him. I mean, these guys, this this movie is, is definitely just is a work of art. It really is. Graham, would you say that the shift in tone that you're talking about there is what's dividing audiences down the middle like it is? You said it sort of goes from this romantic comedy 
into this, what you you called it, this feverish downward spiral of violence? I mean, would you say that that's why people have been turned off or turned on, I guess, too? I think that, <laughs> I think that even though it does feel like a mumblecore rom-com at times at the beginning, from the beginning, there is an established sense of dread and horror. So it's not like you're just completely turned around at an instant and made to think, oh, wait a minute, now we're switching movies. No, this movie has has a, a a clearer voice, you know, throughout. But, I, you know, I think that the, the violence, the level of the violence and what happens specifically is is what might turn, turn... I don't know. I just don't see how you can be turned off by this. I think that people were kind of... Last night, I saw it at the uh, Angelica, which I believe is the only theater playing it in New York. And, uh, this is a theater in Soho. It's an art house theater. And, uh, yeah, not, not a huge crowd either. Uh, unfortunately, it was about, probably about... Theater was probably just over half full for a seven o'clock show, and then you're talking about opening night for this movie. People were silent after the movie. Silent. I wanted to applaud uh, after it was over. I'm sure a lot, of, a lot of other people did too. You could tell that people were loving it. But yes, after the at the end of the movie, people were just like, "Wow, we just went on a ride." It sounds like we're getting our first mumblecore action thriller. So I, I can't <laughs> yeah. wait to, until we see mumblecore shift into the 3D arena. Uh, maybe right. Bellflower will. Will act as, I guess, the ambassador to that. Like, well, Joe he, Swanberg. <laughs> he's making like six movies a year. Yeah, he, yeah, I think he's got seven features in the can, Corey. Yeah, one of them could very well be a 3D movie. Well, Graham, I mean, the films that you mentioned, you mentioned movies like Pulp Fiction and Swingers. I mean, obviously, they were made by filmmakers who were somewhat established. Doug Lyman, not as much. Quentin Tarantino, absolutely. But do you think that this movie will have the legs? of those movies will this movie screen in enough movie houses to where people will talk about it enough and it'll get a push where people like me and Corey can see it at least somewhere close to tuscaloosa before it comes out on dvd i kind of doubt it yeah yeah i mean and i would also throw rushmore into that category you know wes anderson i really think this guy is, is the real deal or has potential to be the real deal you know i mean again judging from last night you know new york when when a movie has buzz it will sell out uh, i'm talking about like an art movie it will sell out on the opening weekend and um that's what happened with Midnight in Paris. I'd never seen anything like that. And I saw Midnight in Paris at this theater on its opening weekend. And, you know, the entire place was packed. There was, like, lines around the, the, on the street. And that's right. I was concerned when it just felt like not really not many people were there to see it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's just because people were, were out of town. But, you know, I, I, I think that the buzz is going to pick up on this. I think that other people are going to agree with me that this is something to see and see again. It is a very bizarre film, unique film, totally original, and it's hard to classify it as, as in, you know, it's hard to categorize it, you know, in, in any genre. It's going to be tough as far as distributors are going to be like, what the hell is this? Oh, and it has graphic violence. Oh, and it has sex and nudity and drug use. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, but I just, I hope that, that it does get a push because, you know, I, I feel like after the movie, I mean, I'm telling you, I walked out of there and I was like jacked up. I was like, man, I just saw something really special and that's rare. Bellflower is now playing in select cities, New York and L.A., I would imagine. But we appreciate the report. Do you feel like sticking around with us for the rest of the show? Sure thing. All right. Well, we'll take another quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about how we've probably reached our limit on movie spoilers. You can stick around. This is Aspect Radio. And they don't think I know a buttload of crap about the gospel, but I do. Money points ever. <sighs> we were in this together. Then you were gone. Another is evil rising to put man 
supposed to come back. What if he doesn't exist anymore? He must. Hello and welcome to our next video blog. I thought it would be good to carry on talking to Andy Circus about some of the fun and games we had uh, during our first block of shooting. Andy. Andy? Where is he? Welcome back to Aspect Radio. Corey and I are joined by my brother, Graham Flanagan. So this week, Warner Brothers released an official still of Anne Hathaway as Selena Kyle in Christopher Nolan's final installment of his Batman trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises. It's never unusual for a studio to release an image from the movie, even this early into productions, but fans are almost pressuring studios to shell out more than they might like to by leaking set photos and videos that they've shot from far away without the studio's permission. So now we have early looks at Tom Hardy as the villain Bane fighting Batman on the Gotham streets that somebody took, as well as other details of the film that we might not want to know about until at least a few weeks leading up to the film's release. Then you have Peter Jackson and his online production diaries that are available to everybody via Facebook detailing the making of the Hobbit films as he and his crew are making them. Just like he did with his King Kong remake, it's as if Jackson is giving us no choice but to watch these videos. We can't help ourselves. But as one online talkbacker put it, are we ruining movie magic one video at a time by making them and by watching them? And how about things like Comic-Con, built around giving the fans what the studios think they want, footage, costumes, images, characters, any microscopic detail about their tentpole film that they think we want to know prior to the film's release. And I think I've reached my boiling point now, Corey and Graham, and I fear that I'm seeing too much and in turn compromising my film-going experience. I never just let it all happen to me at once anymore when I see the film. I read about and see so much of these projects that my expectations either lower or they skyrocket to a point where I'm just not giving these films a fair shake anymore. In fact, the films are almost becoming an afterthought. So I'll start with you, Corey. At this point, are we all just spoiled rotten? Well, I'm going to start with an anecdote, one that we've already touched on in this show. Among the last two movies I saw in theaters were... Uh, Crazy Stupid Love, the romantic comedy with uh, Steve Carell, Julianne Moore, and Ryan Gosling. And, and then, of course, last night's Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I didn't think that Crazy Stupid Love was a movie that could be spoiled necessarily, but there are one or two uh, plot twists of some note that really kind of come out of nowhere and take you by surprise. And then with Rise of the Planet of the Apes, as we discussed earlier, there's that great audience reaction moment. Uh, that I don't want to spoil too much about, obviously, because going into it blind and not knowing that it's coming is just incredibly awesome. So I didn't, I mean, I didn't like Crazy Stupid Love at all, but there was something refreshing almost about it that it genuinely surprised me, just like Rise of the Planet of the Apes genuinely surprised me. Now, I, I don't know that that is because... I didn't slavishly detail over every single production photo that came out of either of those movies, but it did get me thinking this week, particularly given like the you know the Dark Knight Rises set photos coming out, uh, that maybe you know maybe I should take a step back. Now, where where I think I'm a little more on the line is with Peter Jackson's production diaries. I think that they're 
interesting enough and reveal little enough about the film that they're they're almost okay to watch. The the one that I watched was mostly about location scouting and you know you see some sets that are old, you know familiar and and um some familiar faces. So so those don't really bother me that much and and those do work to get me anticipated. But if I'm seeing pictures of you know, I don't know if it's a climactic battle scene from The Dark Knight Rises, but the point is I don't have any context for that, and it, that that kind of worries me a little bit. It's interesting that you brought up the Planet of the Apes moment that happens, because that's a moment where you you see so many trailers now, and people complain that they give away too much, they give away everything. Uh-huh. That's a moment that they easily could have put they in really a trailer. They really could have. Yeah, and they yeah. didn't. And it feels like if our expectations are lowered a little bit, we might enjoy movies a little more. That's the, definitely the case with Planet of the Apes, I think, because we didn't want to see that movie as much as maybe something else that we saw this year. That might be part of the reason, like you said, why we liked it as much. We didn't know anything because we didn't want to know anything. Right. And I think if we apply that same line of thinking, we might enjoy movies a little bit more. But Graham, you and I, I remember back when... King Kong was being made by Peter Jackson, and he started releasing these production diaries. You and I watched those, and I don't know about you, but I think looking back in retrospect, I do feel like it kind of affected how I felt about that movie, at least the first time that I saw it, but I just didn't know if you felt the same way about that or about what you're seeing these days from Peter Jackson or anybody else. Well, it's funny because um, I remember when I first saw the trailer for The Fellowship of the Ring, um, I can't remember what movie I was going to see, but it was in a it was in a theater. I, you know, I had not seen the trailer hadn't leaked online or anything. And I, I saw that the teaser trailer for Fellowship of the of the Ring for the first time in a theater when I was going to see a movie. I mean, I kind of miss that feeling of you know being in the theater and and first getting the, the, that experience of a trailer for a movie that you're excited about. You know, getting that for the first time in a theater with the with on the big screen with the lights down. So that's a great. I mean. Both of both of you guys, I'm sure you know know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, that's that you've you've had that experience throughout your lives, but now we're getting that less and less and less because you know people are posting the trailers on YouTube and then blogging about them on AL.com, and it's like we <laughs> we don't get that same sensation of, of like, oh man, I didn't know this was coming out so soon. Oh man, here it comes, you know, first Lord of the Rings trailer. But of course, as a film fan, I'm I enjoy these these. These, uh, especially the, the production diaries. You know, when you're talking about set photos, like I don't, I don't know. I've been underwhelmed by all of the all of the set photos of that of Dark Knight Rises, and I was underwhelmed a little bit by the Superman photo that leaked this week. And it's just like when they do this, yes, it creates buzz and keeps it fresh in your mind, but it also, you know, it allows the, the audience to kind of like create these perceptions of the movie, like, oh man. Why does Superman's suit have scales on it? You know, I mean, like people are going to sit around and talk about that. And, and like right now, I'm like, at, at first I thought, oh wow, Zack Snyder's going to do Superman with Chris Nolan producing. You know, what's going to happen? But now I see that photo, and I'm like, books whack. <laughs> you know, so it's like it's, it's you can. But of course, I want to see this stuff. But it's all this production photo and production diary stuff for that experience of seeing that trailer live in the theater for the first time. I, I totally agree, and. It's interesting that you said the experience that you had when you would go to a theater and you would see these trailers for the first time. We can't do that anymore, or we can't really have the element of surprise anymore, especially because 
we're at a point now where we can sort of we can sort of calculate or we can sort of deduce when the trailer is going to show right. before a specific movie. Like we all knew that the new Spider-Man trailer was going to show before Captain America or, or the Dark Knight trailer is going to show before this movie. We know when it's going to happen or we've already seen it leaked online. We've watched a, you know, a shaky cam version of that trailer. And yeah, to me, it would just be so neat to go into a movie not knowing what trailer I was going to see or not knowing how far along in production a movie is. Yeah, and we get to see the teaser trailer, and we just don't have that excitement anymore. I you guess. remember that, right? You remember that feeling, though, right? Of growing up, you know, where the internet, where this, this, yeah, this trend didn't dominate our lives. Yeah. Like, we, we, you would see these trailers for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember, you know going to a theater and seeing a teaser trailer for Batman Returns, you know what I mean? And just being freaked out that a new Batman movie with new villains was on the horizon. And I was so excited. And I was very young then. But, I mean, I think that that's a feeling that I could have again, I guess, if I choose to avoid clicking these links. And it's up to us. We put the pressure on ourselves. Well, and, you know, regardless of what you think of the the film products that resulted in them, J.J. Abrams' strategy of marketing Cloverfield and Super 8 sort of harkens back to preserving that experience. I mean, as I recall, Cloverfield's first trailer was just a teaser in front of the first Transformers movie with no title, with just a release date, and it was just that really compelling image of, I guess, the Statue of Liberty's head bouncing onto a street with people running, and Mm -hmm. you're just like, what is that? I don't know anything about that. That's a complete mystery to everybody. And then Super 8's train teaser that uh, showed in front of Iron Man 2. So you got to give him credit for that. He is trying to preserve that experience. I do give him credit for that, but where I take credit away is from us, the people who get online and go to the message boards and start shouting, it's a lion. That guy says it's a lion. <laughs> yeah, it's a Voltron movie. Yeah, and we, <laughs> and we have to analyze every single second of these trailers right. now. And like Graham said, when the image of Anne Hathaway on what looks like the Bat Pod popped up yesterday, you know, you get on Ain't It Cool, and like the first comment is, "This movie's gonna suck," you know, <laughs> just based on that one image. So we've made our decision right away. Yeah, that's probably like a like a ten second shot of like her riding <laughs> the Bat Pod into a scene and then immediately getting off or something like yeah, that. And you it's know? not as good as The Dark Knight, right. right? Yeah, already. Yeah. So again, it's up. To, it's really up to us. I mean, it really falls on us. Do we click? But we can't help ourselves. Well, I was going to say the thing too is like with Cloverfield and, and Super Eight, they did a good job at keeping the details you know close to their vest or whatever. But then it kind of became about it was like everybody's obsessed with wow there there are really no details coming out you know and everybody's just obsessed with the fact that they're not releasing any details it's kind of like this uh jay-z kanye west album that's coming out on monday like it's been in the works for a year and people have just been waiting for it to leak but they have been able to prevent it from leaking and nobody's gotten a leak and it's it's amazing but it's like it's because the story has become you know, not how great the album's going to be, but it's it's the story is, you know, wow, they've prevented it from leaking. And so that builds the hype up so much that hopefully it doesn't happen with this album that's coming out, but I think that's kind of what happened to Super 8. The hype was so strong about, oh, we're not going to tell anybody anything, and then finally when it got here... It was a little underwhelming. Well, so it can work to your disadvantage. On the flip side, though, that, that's also, I would say, what happened with Inception. You know, the marketing for that movie was so particularly calibrated. You you know, got a sense of imagery, but not, not really a sense of plot until, I mean, I don't remember if plot details started leaking like the movie it came out. But I, I certainly didn't have a sense of what that movie was until we saw it. 
you yeah, know, for the true. first time. And that I, I think that that, you know, that sense of mystery and that hype sort of, you know, was a tremendous advantage to that movie. And it paid off. Yeah, yeah and, and it did. And with something like Cloverfield that you mentioned, I feel like the marketing campaign and the viral campaigning of Cloverfield was actually superior to the film itself. I, I didn't like feel like the movie. film delivered on the promise that it gave us. I thought that it was brilliant. I couldn't wait to see that movie. I thought that was like the best way to market a movie that I had seen in years. But I just didn't think the film was very good. I mean, there were great moments for sure, but I just thought the characters were annoying. It was underwritten. And I think they focused more of their attention on, here's how we're going to tease this movie. Here's how we're going to present it to people by not showing many of those annoying characters in what we give before they see the movie. Right. So, anyway, I think Super 8 was a little better than that, though, Graham. Corey, do you think that you can make a decision to not watch the Peter Jackson production diaries or not read message boards or not watch leaked on-set footage of these films? Can you just decide not to do that and go into these movies fresh from now on? No. <laughs> I'm being honest. I mean, if I if I were to click on, like, Ain't It Cool right now and somebody was like, more Dark Knight Rises set photos, I'd be like, oh, I'm all over that. But right you now. won't let it affect you, right? I mean, Does it get you excited it, or you it get doesn't. down It's just it. like, oh, there's a picture. It will never get me down on a movie because it's like seeing, like, a stunt guy in a Spider-Man costume and being like, oh, that costume looks lame. You know, it's all about how it works in the moment of the movie. Mm -hmm. Set photos, I mean, like, getting a first look at Bane's costume was cool, and I don't know if that's what Catwoman is going to look like throughout the whole movie, or if it's that. There's no way to know. And there's still some semblance of mystery just based on what the context is and what these scenes mean, and that's what's more, most interesting to me, you know. I don't really fixate on things like, ugh, Superman's cape should be a darker color of red than you know it is presented here. Therefore, this movie is invalid. I don't really, I don't really fixate on that. It's just, it's just a matter of how it works in the movie. As we round this out, I keep hearing that teaser trailers are revealed, right? And we get a teaser trailer for John Carter, directed by Andrew Stanton. To me, that was not a teaser trailer. We saw so much. Of that movie now, I think we need to redefine what a teaser trailer is. I like, guess it's a teaser in that it didn't explain the premise at all. That's but true. It just shows imagery, right? It's but, more of a featurette. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't really, I don't really understand that trailer because it seems like you would want to sell people on the premise and not the weird stuff. I don't think first. that teased us as much as it basically. I think gave people an opportunity to decide whether or not they wanted to see the film. Because they Before saw even so really knowing it. what it is. Yeah, because yeah, you, saw, no. you saw who was in it, you saw what the visual landscape of it was, what the tone of it was. It's a weird trailer. Yeah, it's almost like a full trailer without yeah. details. So anyway, I think J.J. Abrams and those kind of people, they get it right in that they're able to tease these effectively and pique our interest, but we're not seeing enough of that these no, days. No, I agree. Maybe, I thought Christopher Nolan's teaser for Inception was brilliant, and we did see a lot of that, too. I guess it's just in the way you package it, the yeah. way you conceive and package it. So, anyway, Corey, as we wind down the show, what new DVDs should we look for? Well, this past week, uh, there were a lot of releases, not too many I can really recommend, but two smaller releases that I enjoyed quite a bit. An indie movie that played at Sundance this year called The Music Never Stopped, starring J.K. Simmons and Lou Taylor Pucci. Simmons plays sort of a stodgy father who reconnects with a uh, long-lost son in the 1980s. The son has a brain tumor that has affected his ability to create new memories, and he has to reconnect with his son based on the late 1960s, early 1970s milieu when his son, for, you know, 
first left his home and they sort of lost contact through the music that his son was a fan of. It's a very, very affecting, very moving story. It's actually based on an essay from Dr. Oliver Sacks, the uh, guy who was responsible for Awakenings. So it's in that same line, and uh, J.K. Simmons, as always, is just really great. The second movie is another smaller release, and I, I recommend this with some hesitancy, but just because... There's not much else. It's the documentary Exporting Raymond. It's a documentary about Phil Rosenthal, the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, who is tasked with launching a version of his show in Russia for for Russian markets. And very comedically, he goes over there and his American comedic ideas clash almost instantaneously. I find it, it, it's played a little too glib at times, but it is a really interesting look at a different culture and how comedy doesn't translate. American comedy certainly doesn't. If right. you go and look at the overseas grosses of a lot of American comedies, even the stuff with Will Ferrell and Adam Sandler, they don't do very well overseas. No, no. And, and this is, um, I don't know, it, it's a weird sort of vanity project in that, you know, Phil Rosenthal directed it and it follows him through Russia and it doesn't shy away from making him seem like a, you know, whiny, neurotic American over there mm-hmm. wanting to get his way. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting movie and it's often very funny. So that's it really. I mean, I, I thought that that animated movie Rio, you know, was okay, but I'd hate to really give it a sterling recommendation here on this show because of what my word means and how people trust me. So Right, yeah, it doesn't matter. Graham, is there anything else you want to throw out there? Well, I, I'm still pumped to see Rango. I know it's been out for a few a few minutes, but uh, but I, I really can't wait to watch Rango <laughs> in full HD glory. You guys have both seen it, right? Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I can't wait. That's what's on my radar. Okay, well, opening nationwide in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16 this week, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and The Change-Up with Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman. Corey, you caught an advanced screening of this the other night. Would you briefly... Share with us what you well, think. Well, first, I want to give thanks to the folks at Birmingham Weekly who hooked me up with the passes. That was really cool of them. <laughs> Unfortunately, the movie itself didn't live up to that cool gesture. I actually wrote a review of this in Tusk, uh, in the Tuscaloosa News, which ran yesterday. I think it's a hateful movie. <laughs> I really do. I think this movie hates, like, everybody, particularly if you were a woman or, I don't know, I, I, I would call it racist and sexist and homophobic if it didn't just hate everybody equally. The one bright spot, sort of, is Jason Bateman, who, in switching his body with the slacker, stoner type, gets a chance to cut loose a little bit, but he gets to, unfortunately, cut loose with some of the worst writing and worst jokes. Presented it in a a mainstream comedy in a long time. This movie's just foul, dirty, but not funny. But it's it's the writers of The Hangover, though. And it's the director of The Wedding Crashers. That's what the trailer said, Corey. Yeah, but, okay, The Hangover, first of all, (laughs) was funny. It had funny jokes in it because it was rewritten extensively from these original guys' script. And Wedding Crashers, I don't know, had charming actors and some heart. This has nothing. This is just crudity from beginning to end with... I mean, none of the jokes land. It looked like an abomination when I first saw the trailer. Yeah, couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it when I was watching it. It looked like a trailer that you would see like in Tropic Thunder, one of those fake trailers. I just couldn't believe it, and I couldn't believe guys like Jason Bateman and Ryan Reynolds would subject themselves to Now, just picture that trailer with... A bunch of naked women portrayed as gross, like with either gross plastic surgery or, you know, whatever. And that's the joke. 
that's the punchline to uh, you know that's like oh here's a naked woman oh wait no she's gross that that's the that's the sort of humor we've got here oh that sounds kind of funny no it's not i'll be seeing it this afternoon yeah oh boy well i warned you i warned you if you do i was able to have that that kind of fresh experience with the the the, the change up i saw that trailer in the theater before hangover too i'd never and never i didn't watch the production diaries or see the set stills or anything it just i just let it wash over me all, all at once oh man oh yeah well uh no, don't don't go see that movie. You you've got so many other options. Corey, are you are you pumped about Bellflower? You know, I'm interested in it. I I don't know that I'll ever get to see it ever just because of the geographical limitations. But there've been these you in the past. Yeah, I'm going to hop in the General Lee and drive to Austin to see it. But just based on the Twitter war that I've seen with film writers that I actually respect, uh, you know, over the last couple days who are, you know, like Ben said split down the middle about it yeah i'm gonna see it i'm I'm kind of pumped for it we'll see when it opens around here maybe maybe the bama art house will pick it up in a couple months or something you never know maybe well you can email any of your feedback to 90.7 movies at gmail.com find us at twitter.com slash aspect radio or facebook.com slash aspect radio you can download this and other episodes of the show on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com. We'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook, and check us out on al.com. Just scroll down the homepage to find us in the entertainment section on Monday, or search Aspect Radio. You can read Corey's DVD column in Tusk Magazine every Friday in the Tuscaloosa News. Do not forget to visit our friend Matt Scalici's website, filmnerds.com, where you will right now find some new entries into the Great Scenes series, one written by Matt on back to the future and another written by ben stark on the climactic scene in alfred hitchcock's notorious and thanks again to you graham for joining us today we appreciate it my pleasure guys and thanks to Corey's lovely wife kathleen for sitting in the studio with us today yeah, completely silently but she's here till next week i'm ben flanagan and i'm Corey craft this is aspect radio thanks for listening seen from out here everything seems different time bed Space is boundless. It squashes a man's ego. I feel lonely. At, at, at Aspect Radio.